Good afternoon. It's good to see you once again, family. It's a blessed privilege for us to be able to come in this kind of setting to worship the Lord our God. Have you ever felt unfulfilled in life? Maybe uh, you've accomplished all of your goals, yet you still feel like something is missing. Perhaps you've tried to find fulfillment in the material possessions, in relationships, or other pursuits, but nothing seems to satisfy the longing that is in your hearts. Going to continue this idea of being satisfied. If I've described you, then you're not alone. I think we've all been there where we felt unfulfilled. So many people today uh, are searching for meaning and purpose in life, but are still unfulfilled. There is a word from the Lord to help us. In John 6, 43 through 59 Jesus speaks to this deep longing that is within us. He tells us that he is the bread of life that can satisfy the hunger of our souls. He offers not something that is temporal, not something that will fade, not something that will dissipate as a mist in the air. But he's talking about something that is everlasting. He's talking about a fulfillment, a fulfillment that can be found in no other but himself. So if you're feeling unfulfilled in life. We all have seasons that we go through. There are times where we feel strong. There are times when we feel full. Then there are times when we feel like we're in a spiritual wilderness. And Jesus is is here with us, amongst us, To help us to understand that through him, we're able to be fulfilled and we're able to be satisfied. And so I encourage you to listen closely to what he has to say in this passage. He offers us the bread that can satisfy the deepest longings wherever you are. He can reach you. So let's open our hearts to his message and allow him to fill us with this love and with this grace. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, how we look forward to being satisfied, the going through a week, having to deal with all kinds of issues in this life, We can at times feel empty and unfulfilled, but oh, how we give thanks to you that you are the living bread 
that satisfy us in the full. We pray that you would help us to see the glories, the riches that is found in your word. Help us, Lord. Reach us where we are. Speak to our hearts and our minds that we might leave here full. We pray that you would guide us and direct us and help us to understand. And we pray that all will be able to eat from your table, even the little children, Lord God. We pray that they too will be able, Lord God, to feed, to be full, Lord. We pray that you would reach them where they are. Lord God, we pray and we ask that you would save the unbelieving one, that today would be the day of salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, please turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to pick up at verse 41. John chapter 6, verse 41. On last time, we left off on verse 43, but I've chosen to start our reading at verse 41 to help give a little context to the conversation Jesus is having with the Jews. John 6, verse 41, hear now the word of the living God. So the Jews grumbled about him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that One may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of 
of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the living God. Today we will continue part two of this sermon series called Jesus, the Bread of Life. But before we begin where we left off, let's just recap from the discourse Jesus began with the Jews, starting from verse 41 for context, leading up to verse 43, and from there We'll continue and we'll pick up. The Jews gave their response to Jesus. The truth is, they could not comprehend what Jesus was teaching them. They started murmuring because it was hard for them to believe Jesus' teaching. So beginning at verse 41, the text says, so the Jews, they grumbled. Because it was hard for them to understand, they murmured and complained. They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they reflected upon who they thought he was. And in this passage, the Jews listening to Jesus, grumbled among themselves because of his claims. He claimed to be the bread that came down from heaven. They questioned how Jesus could make such a claim, given that they knew him. They knew him to be the son of Joseph and Mary. How could this be? And as stated before, the Jews' response reflects their misunderstanding of Jesus' true identity and and mission. They were expecting a political Messiah who would overthrow Rome so that Israel may be restored to their former glory. 
However, they could not reconcile this expectation with Jesus' claim to be the bread that came down from heaven. Christians today, for us, this passage serves as a reminder of importance of recognizing Jesus' true identity and mission. It shows us the need for discernment when interpreting Jesus' teachings and claims. Therefore, we need to be reminded of the need to be discerning. We need to have the ability to judge and distinguish between certain things so that we might use them in order to make good judgment, that we might understand and have good insight. It's a common trait that can be applied to many circumstances and situations when it comes down to assessing and making decisions. And so, in this passage, Jesus had told a crowd that he was the bread of life that came down from heaven. This statement was confusing and offensive to some Jews who knew Jesus personally because of his earthly parents. This passage shows the tension when we're trying to communicate spiritual realities to a world that is darkened, where the light of God's Spirit have not come in yet to expose the darkness so that they might see the realities of God. There's a tension. So when we're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that we need help We need the Holy Spirit to give the revelation so that men who are in the dark might see the realities of God. Therefore, we must be dependent upon God and who he is. He is the living bread. What Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so it's a, it's a reminder to us of the tension that is there when we are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so while Jesus was fully human, he was also fully God. And, and he came to earth to fulfill God's plan for salvation However, many people struggled to accept his divine nature because they knew him as a regular human being. They knew him as a man. So the conversation between Jesus and the people reminds us of the difficulties that comes with sharing the gospel. And so we must keep learning in preparation for these opportunities and more importantly for our own spiritual growth. 
Just as the Jews found it challenging to comprehend the true identity of Jesus' people today and in the coming generations may encounter similar struggles in understanding the message of salvation through faith in Christ alone. As believers, we must take the necessary time to handle such situations with humility and with patience and with an openness to listen and to address people's queries and worries. However, we must remain firm in our faith and belief in Jesus' claims, even if others express skepticism or doubt. We must remain strong in the Lord without doubting. So this passage serves as a reminder of the difficulties that comes with sharing. So in other words, be ready for conflict. We're to share the the gospel. We're to do it with love. We're to take a hard situation, a, a hard message for people to receive, and we're to, we're to captivate them. We're to, we're to cover it up with love. Right? We want to take that which we know that is good, and we want to share it in a way that is loving. Can you imagine a doctor? who has medicine that is good for us, just has no, no kind of respect when he comes in the office, just say, yeah, I'm going to give you this. And he just sticks you with the needle. Right? That's, that's a problem with that, right? Yeah, the medicine may have been good, but the way you go about it, right, is not helpful. Right? And in the same message as Christians, as we share that which is good, we must share it in a way that is loving, in a way that is kind, in a way that we want to receive. We must come alongside of unbelievers. We must share with them the humanity and the struggles we have in this life when no one knows Christ. How hard it is for anyone who lives this life without knowing Christ. What a difficult path. That would be. And so, when we share the gospel, we can learn from the master teacher. Right? The one who had all of the information, all of the knowledge that one would need to say you're guilty. But in all of that, he was loving. And he was kind. He was inviting. Come join me. I am the bread of life. And so, we too in our conversation must be reminded of these things and we must be gentle and kind. So, the Jews found it challenging to comprehend this message. And individuals today may encounter the same struggles and having to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In response to their doubts, the text says that Jesus 
answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then he says, I will raise him up on the last day. There's that, that word of comfort. That's, there's the comfort and confidence that Jesus has been saying the whole while. And uh, reminding us about our salvation, reminding us that God is sovereign and whoever is in the Father's hand, no one can pluck them out. Whoever is saved because of the Son, no one can disturb their salvation. Because it's not dependent upon our works. We're not saved on the basis of what we've done. The things that we do now for the sake of Christ is the evidence of our faith. It's because we're in faith that we obey and that we honor God. It's not a means to faith. The Lord himself has accomplished All that is needed for salvation when he went to the cross and when he died, when he said it is finished. That means that all of the works that is needed for salvation is done, is finished in him. And all those who come to faith in Christ would receive all of the benefits that comes with Christ fulfilling all that's needed to enter heaven. That's why it's the angelion, it's the good news, it's the gospel. And that's the great comfort that we continue to have and to meditate upon. Jesus continues, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, it kind of sounds like faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? So salvation comes not by works. It comes by hearing the word of God and then exercising faith and believing the message that God has spoken through his word. Everyone comes the same way. It's through faith. Whether it's through faith, looking forward to Christ, or whether it's after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, looking back, it's still faith. And when we exercise faith, we come to know him. Not through any works, but through faith. We must believe. Our dear brother reminded us of How often the scripture says, believe, 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 believe. And how so often so many people want to give, as if they could, want to give God something to make themselves righteous before God, which they cannot do. Because God's standard is too high. His standard is perfection. And so you can't bring one measly good deed and think that that accomplishes everything. God demands righteousness that is perfect, and no one has met it but the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must come through the mediator. We must come through the Christ. We must come through the one who have said, I am the bread. I am the sustenance. I am life. And you must come through 
me. For there is no way to the Father except through me. And so in this passage, Jesus addresses the grumbling of the Jews who were listening to him by emphasizing the role of the Father in drawing people to himself. He explains that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them, and that those who are drawn to him will be raised up on the last day. Jesus then quotes the prophets to emphasize the importance of being taught by God leading to belief in Jesus as the Son of God. He also emphasizes his unique relationship with God the Father, stating that only he, from God, speaking of himself, has seen the Father. In other words, conversion begins with God. No one can have a genuine relationship apart from God. It is impossible. Conversion is the act of turning or returning to God through repentance, through faith, and through obedience. It can occur in individuals who have previously not known God or turned away from him. And so conversion just doesn't begin at salvation God is continuing to turn us to himself. So continuing concerning our salvation is continuing to be accomplished. On the one hand, it is accomplished, but on the other hand, it is being accomplished. And the fact of our living it out, our salvation is justified, but our Sanctification continues. In James 5, 19 through 20, this truth is conveyed. There it states to the church, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here we clearly see that the act of turning in those who return to God through repentance, faith, and obedience, it's something that we must continue in because we still carry with us this sinful flesh. Paul identified with it. Him wanting to get rid of his flesh reminds us of how the flesh kind of is like a dead man that we have to carry along with us until we depart from this body. We can feel the weightiness of sin because of this flesh that we carry. But we also see the Lord's dealing with us as he dealt with Peter before he denied the Lord three times. Do you remember the conversation and what was said? Let me remind you, in Luke 22, beginning at verse 31, Jesus Jesus stated, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Here's the beautiful thing. 
but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He didn't say, I've prayed for you so that you can keep working hard, right? But he dealt with his belief. He, he dealt with his faith. And he said to him, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, right? This idea of stumbling and falling and turning again to the Lord. This is something that believers, the more we, we, we read the Word of God, the more the Spirit will illuminate the Word of God, we'll begin seeing ourselves as God would see us, and we'll begin to recognize the dirtiness that is on us, the sin that we commit, and we'll begin to ask God to have mercy on us because we're beginning to see like God sees, and our eyes are beginning to open water and water, and our eyes are becoming like laser vision, laser sharp. We're beginning to see things that we've never seen we never seen before. And so it goes on to say, when you turn again, what does it say? Just reminds us of the fellowship of the need for us to be together often, right? It says, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. That's, that, that lets us know that we're not here to be on our own somewhere, somewhere else on an island by ourselves, thinking that somehow through that we're going to be close with God. God often says that this work must be done amongst his people and his family. It is not to be done alone. And so we're reminded of that because God commands Peter that when you're strong, just like the scripture says, you're strong, help your brother. Those of you who are spiritual, restore your brother, strengthen him. How can we do that if we're out of fellowship? How do we do that if we're not amongst one another? How do we do that if we're missing? If we're hitting here, hitting there, how can we strengthen and how, anyone and how can we be strengthened? Well, you see, there's a necessity for us to take upon our identity as the family of God. That's why I say family. I want to live in that. We are the family of God. And so we're reminded of that. And so let us not fail. Let us continue. Let us continue to turn and strengthen our brothers. But Peter's Peter wasn't listening, though. Listen to his response in verse 33. Peter says to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. What did Jesus say? I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So in other words, it's not about being strong. It's not about uh, having you know, a, a certain uh, strength in and of ourselves so that we might live for Christ. It's rather a dependence upon God. 
It's a dependence upon him. And so Peter, you know the story. Peter did deny the Lord, but he also repented. He exercised faith in the Lord, and he started again obeying the master. Yes, the apostle Peter. He also struggled with sin, just like us. But what we see consistently with those who exercise faith is that they returned again and they obeyed the Lord. And the scripture says they ran through the tape. They finished well. And that's the goal we must have. We must run through the tape. We must finish well. We must exercise our spiritual muscles. As the scripture says, bodily exercise profit little, but spiritual exercise profit all things. That's the mindset we must have and must continue. So while conversion can be seen as a human decision, the Bible emphasizing that the work of God is behind the decision, guiding and motivating it. He plays an essential role in the conversion process, drawing individuals to himself, enabling them to turn toward him. Conversion involves changing one's beliefs, changing one's values and behaviors as they align with God's will and purpose for their lives. It is a transformative process that leads to a new relationship with God and a new way of living. This change can only be accomplished by God who draws people to himself and provides forgiveness and new life through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, conversion is a process of spiritual transformation that occurs when an individual recognizes their sinful behavior, sinful nature, and turns toward God in faith and repentance, receiving forgiveness and a new life through the Lord Jesus Christ. This understanding of conversion emphasizing the role that God has in the process. It underscores the importance of repentance and renewal. There's no way we can say we know the Lord and at the same time continue in sin. There's going to be a discomfort with that because we can't at the, one, at the same time have the Spirit of God living in us and remain in darkness or play around, play around with it. We're going to be disturbed in our spirit. And therefore, we must have this repentance, this idea of repentance and renewal. So, conversion involves a turning away from unbelief and towards faith, and it is linked to repentance and coming to faith in Christ, it results in a transformed life 
and a new relationship with God characterized by a new status and a new understanding. Conversion demands a new lifestyle that reflects the values and principles of God. God's kingdom. And it symbolizes this idea of this newness in baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're able to see when you come, when we come out of the water, it is indicating to the world that the old Steve has died. And now there is risen a new who is new in Christ. New because of what Christ have done in me. And we all have that story. We all testify and is a witness before all that I too believe in the one who have come as the bread of life. He's saved me. And I'm putting all of my hope and trust in him. I'm not trusting in myself in anything. I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, we must live our lives in such a way that God is working in us and through us through the work of his spirit. God turns people toward himself. He gives them new birth and enables them to live transformed lives. And so with that being said, we are changed. In Ephesians 2, verse 12 and 13, in reference to the listeners, we also are reminded to remember our own turning. Beginning at verse 12 in Ephesians 2, it states, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, beautiful word, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Conversion is a work of God. In an ultimate sense, God turns people to himself, but at the same time, in response to his working and the work he did, everyone must for themselves believe and be saved by their own profession of faith. So do you believe? That's the question we're all challenged with. You're here today and you don't know Christ. It's the question for you. Today, do you believe what the Lord has done for you in order to be saved? He died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again from the grave in order to set you free from the bondage of sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it states, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the salvation that we could have when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We die to ourselves and we're raised up in Christ. This passage also reminds us of the vital role of the Holy Spirit in drawing people to faith in Jesus Christ. It reminds us that our salvation is ultimately the work of God and that it is only through the drawing of the Holy Spirit that we can come to faith. Moreover, this passage underscores the importance of being taught by God which is achieved through reading and studying the scriptures, praying and seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So as we strive to grow in our faith and understanding of God's will for our lives, we must remain humble and open to the teachings of the Holy Spirit, allowing ourselves to be drawn closer and closer and closer and closer to God. And then we'll begin to see more and more changes from our lives. But we must begin in faith. So what a blessed reminder of our unique relationship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. As believers, we must remain steadfast in our faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing him as the only true source of salvation and the true embodiment of God's love and grace. Now let's let's look at verses 47 through 51. Here, the Lord reiterates it again to make sure that they are clear about what he's stating. Notice what it says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. It's as if the Lord is digging his heels in. Then he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. They, the Jews, they're putting their hope, their confidence, their salvation on the experience that their fathers had in the wilderness. They are describing themselves, giving their identity to to their fathers. The problem is, is that the fathers died and the manna died. It was wasted. It came to nothing. But, but Jesus is speaking spiritually. He's saying, I am the living bread that came down, not from the skies, but came down from heaven's throne. I am the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he's showing distinction. This this bread, me, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Sounds like John 3.16, doesn't it? So in this passage, Jesus proclaims that belief in him is the key to eternal life. He refers to himself as the bread of life, 
a metaphor that emphasizes his role in providing spiritual nourishment and sustenance to all believers. He contrasts himself with the manna that the Israelites ate in the wilderness, which only provided physical sustenance at a time, for a time, and did eventually prevent, did not prevent death. In contrast, Jesus promises that those who partake of him will not die, but will have eternal life. Jesus goes on to explain that he is the living bread that came down from heaven, that those who eat of it will live forever. And finally, he hints at his future sacrifice on the cross, saying that the bread he will give for for the life of the world is his flesh. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ reminds us that only through faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross can we have the assurance of salvation and promise of eternal life. In addition, this passage highlights the significance of the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice and a way to partake of the bread of life. It also encourages us to approach the Lord's Supper with reverence and gratitude, recognizing the spiritual nourishment and sustenance it provides. And so in response to his claims, we see in verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus is clearly using metaphors in his discussion with them about himself in being the only and necessary way for them to to obtaining eternal life. Jesus continues to deal with their spiritual condition. They're trying to enter in through some physical way, and Jesus is telling them that He is the way, and one must come not through the flesh, but it's a spiritual condition that they must deal with. He continues to emphasize it in a way that they can grasp and understand, but they continue to reject it and remain in disbelief. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true uh, drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides. In me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In this passage, Jesus tells the Jews that they will have no life in them unless they eat of his flesh and drink his blood. This statement is confusing 
or what's confusing and offensive to the Jews who do not understand Jesus' true meaning. Jesus clarifies this with his words. He clarifies this as being spiritual and not literal, and he is speaking of the necessity of believing, the necessity of having faith in him. Believers are renewed spiritually through faith. And we see this in Hebrews in 11 verse 6. There it states, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must, there's the word again, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus gives life, and that life is spiritual life, that life is eternal He uses the metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood to emphasize the intimate union between himself and believers. If he says, if you want life, you must eat me. I am everything you need spiritually to have life in yourself. You must Come to the well of life and drink of me and feel your thirst from me. I am life. And that's what he's doing here. He's using the the, the metaphors of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's letting him know that he is true life. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Romans 8, 10 and 11 The text states, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so. Ultimately, this passage points to the centrality of Jesus Christ in the Christian faith and the necessity of personal and intimate relationship with him. The quality of life is generated and nourished by the Spirit of God who who refers to a transformation, the transformation that he provides that takes place in the lives of believers who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. True spirituality, as opposed to a superficial or counterfeit form of spirituality, that is everything that is apart from Christ, comes from living under the control of the Holy Spirit. And this means that believers must allow the Holy Spirit to guide their thoughts, their actions, and decisions. And so the evidence of true spirituality is seen in the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These traits are not produced by human effort alone, but are the results of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer. We're to be totally committed. We're to be totally dependent. We're to run to God 
expecting to be filled, expecting to have our spiritual quenching, our our spiritual thirst quenched to be filled by Christ. Just as physical food and drink sustains our body, we, we, we find ourselves doing the same thing physically. We work all day and we get home. What are some of the things we say? I am so, help me, hungry, right? I'm so thirsty, right? We're, 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 we're paying respect to what our bodies feel, feel and we want to appease it, right? Spiritually, it's the same way. We're hungry and we're thirsty and we need the same thing. We need spiritual nourishment. And so we do the same thing. We feed ourselves spiritually and physically. So I'm going to go ahead and close with this thought. So family, considering what we have heard and seen from John chapter 6 and pointing us to the incredible love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who offers us the bread of life that sustains our spirits and fills us with his eternal goodness, we must continue eating the eternal bread for our souls. So remember that true satisfaction and fulfillment can only be found in Jesus, the bread of life. He invites us to come to him and abide in him, which means that we need to trust him with our whole being and follow him wholeheartedly. Through faith in Jesus, we receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life.